The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, November 21st, the Whoops a Baby edition. I'm Jamila Lemieux, a writer, contributor to Slate's Karen Feeding Parenting column, and mom to Naima, who is six, and we reside in Los Angeles, California. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm a writer and editor at Slate and the author of How to Be a Family. I'm the parent of Lyra, who's 14, and Harper, who is 12, and we live in Arlington, Virginia. I'm Elizabeth Newcamp. I write the family travel and homeschool blog, Dutch Dutch Goose. I'm a mom to three boys, Henry, seven, Oliver, five, and Teddy, three. My husband's in the Air Force, so we are currently calling Navarre, Florida home. Thank you for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. So today on the show, we've got a question about making friends with other parents at your kid's school and one from a mom wondering if she should tell her son that he was unplanned. How do you even broach the subject? Should you broach the subject? Wait, do other people actually plan their children? (laughs) Plus, we have triumphs and fails and recommendations. Dan, why don't you go first? Do you have for us this week a triumph or a fail? I have a fail. However, I maintain it is not my fault. So uh, it's a blameless fail, in my Uh opinion. So um, I just got back into Washington, D.C. earlier today after a sort of whirlwind 24-hour trip with my kids. Um, We took them out of school yesterday and took them up to New York for a family event and then brought them back. And it was something that we thought was worth taking them out of school for. And we, you know, we made, we talked about it and made that decision and did it. And they both are doing very well in school and we wanted to reward them and their good grades with some kind of exciting thing. Um, So we did this event and we had sort of all planned out. Like we knew when we were going to pick them up and we knew that they were going to miss school, but that one benefit of this is that we were taking the Amtrak up to New York so they would have tons of time to do their homework. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, because the homework is online. You can see what your homework is. You can get it, you know, even if you're on an Amtrak train or in a hotel, you you have hours when you're just like captive in this space Mm -hmm. and you can finish your homework. And we figured, well, they'll be grateful to us for this exciting thing we're doing. And we'll be able to convince them to just sit at the table in the cafe car and just do it. Mm -hmm. And they were absolutely willing to do their homework. But of course, we did not think to contend with the power of educational technology to fuck Mm. up everything that you want your kids to do. So Mm -hmm. all of Lyra's homework is online, and Lyra has to do it all on her school-supplied computer, Mm -hmm. which, because of an additional level of security on the computer, for fear that otherwise Russian hackers will break into a Virginia (laughs) high schooler's school computer, you cannot connect with Wi-Fi on the road. It is impossible to do it. It won't connect to Wi-Fi, any Wi-Fi where there's like a login screen, like on Amtrak Mm -hmm. or in a hotel. It won't allow you to tether to a hotspot. That's not allowed. You can only connect to a direct Wi-Fi network like at your home or at school. So Literally defeating the purpose of giving (laughs) giving them laptops that can be taken anywhere. Right, exactly. So Lyra couldn't do any homework at all. She just couldn't do any. So she was just like fucked. Uh, as were we when we were like, well, what are you going to do instead of your homework? She was like, well, I'm going to stare at my phone. Longtime listeners will remember that this is my forever bugaboo, uh, but that EdTech, rather than making everything easier, rather than making education more portable, just makes everything more difficult. 
So, like, I know that we are not going to go back to the days of, you know, just giving kids worksheets that they can slip into a folder and take with them wherever they go. Mm-hmm. And there are ways where, in theory, it is great that from wherever a kid is, they can access what their assignments are theoretically. But right. when you create all these hurdles, the, like, 25 mm-hmm. different apps that kids have to use, the 17 different logins that no one can remember, the different teachers using different programs because none of them like Canvas as much as mm-hmm. the others like Canvas or some of them prefer Google Docs and you never know where the homework is. Like, all of this stuff creates this insane, uh, like, spaghetti system that no one can figure out and that sets up these roadblocks to kids actually getting their shit done all the time. And the end result of this particular set of roadblocks, which are nonsensical, mm-hmm. is that kids who have to be away from school just mm-hmm. can't do their homework in the hotel or on the plane or in Starbucks or whatever. And look, I know that many people's response to this will be, well, just don't take your kid out of school, Dan. But like this stuff is important. And there are plenty of times the kids miss school that aren't because their parents are scofflaws like we are. Mm-hmm. Like there's a funeral or a hospital stay or a college visit or any number of totally legitimate reasons why parents need their kids to not be in school for a couple of days. You know I'm an enthusiast of keeping kids out of school. Well, Man, yes, you I You got to sell me on truancy. Does she have access, though, to like teachers' emails or anything like that? Uh, yeah, but teachers are overloaded with email all the time. And the stated assumption when you email a teacher is that it's unlikely that they will have time to get back to you during school hours. And you should expect that they'll get back to you within maybe 24 hours or so. And even emailing teachers often isn't useful because it's not like the assignment is just something that they can email you. It's a module on a program that's only accessible through your school computer because that's the computer that's authorized to access this particular variety of online educational software. Just emailing the teacher usually does not solve the problem. That's so interesting. I mean, so we are obviously big proponents of traveling, and that's part of the reason I homeschool the kids. (laughs) So that we can kind of do it from wherever. But I guess I assume there'd be more flexibility in the system. I think that they believe that there's flexibility in the system. But then there are so many people creating things for this system and with our hands on the system that it just ends up creating a bunch of roadblocks. And so you end up with a system that restricts all your classwork uh, and doesn't work in many of the places that a human being might go in the year 2019. So that's my fail, but I maintain that it's the fault of society, not me. (laughs) It is the fault of society. Thank you. And you all may have seen there was a picture that went viral recently of a little boy um, who was doing his homework. It would look to be like a cell phone store um, because he did not have home Internet. And the employees were kind enough to let him regularly come into the store, you know, and, and do his homework because he was required to have this access. They're or schools where that's simply not an issue and all the kids have home internet and then there's schools that actually will provide home internet um, for those that wouldn't have had it otherwise so that they can do these assignments. But it, yes, we've created uh, a system that just simply doesn't always work. And that's why both homework and attendance should be outlawed. Elizabeth, um, <laughs> please, <laughs> do you have a triumph or a fail this week? So I have a triumph. Uh, we are doing our kind of... Um, Christmas clean out of toys. The mm-hmm. boys are at ages in which we move through toys pretty quickly. And one of the things I like to do before 
toys from grandparents and all of that start making their way back into the house is do a big kind of decluttering, a reorganization of the whole space, um, the playroom space. So we got together. I sat down with the boys. We decided we were going to go through all of the toys and decide kind of what was broken and was going to be thrown out and what was still in good shape that um, we could donate to places. And Mm -hmm. so we went through the playroom now because we're home i have kind of one of the largest rooms in the house as the playroom so it's a monumental task but we went through everything we changed up kind of the whole flow and then the kids and i took the toys to um, ronald mcdonald house and we found a couple there were a bunch of stuffed animals we found a place called um, stuffed animals for emergencies and made sure they were all clean and dropped those off And then we also threw away all the little toys that you just don't want and that were cluttering up sort of everything and got things reorganized. And one of the benefits is now they they had some say in the new organization of things. Mm -hmm. So we have kind of this whole new Lego area because more of them are into the Legos now. Um, But also they're back kind of playing in the playroom where things had gotten kind of stale and people weren't as excited. Now new toys are sitting out. There's space for things that will be coming in. So I feel lighter uh, and also our house feels a little bit cleaner before it gets crazy for the holidays. That's very good. That's a great uh, and enraging triumph, Elizabeth. Yeah. (laughs) Congratulations. You know, I, I like to keep things kind of, kind of neat, so that um, is a is a win for me too. It's really my um, obsessive natures, you know, coming down to the children. But we donated a bunch of things, so we we feel good about. In it. In related news, I recently found Harper's soccer cleats from seven seasons ago, <laughs> and uh, threw them in the garbage. No, <laughs> but you found them. But we found them. You, but you found them. <laughs> Well, I have um, I have a fail that is uh, loosely related to Elizabeth's triumph. So I'm going out of town, um, partially because Dan and I are going on a field trip. Mm-hmm. And um, as soon as I get back from that, I am going to Chicago for about a week for Thanksgiving holiday. And so I have to pack and all that stuff. And I'm going to be out of the house for a while. And I just got all my stuff delivered from uh, the move a few weeks ago. And I call myself being, you know, on top of things because I didn't really get too much unpacking done last week. So I booked a couple of folks from TaskRabbit to come today. One who is at my place right now building furniture, um, like bookshelves and toy box and stuff like that. And then the second uh, who I'd also scheduled to come at the same time, which was a fail on my part, would be doing organizing. You know, all my clothes and shoes are for the most part unpacked. And I just need some help kind of getting them in order and getting the kitchen together. Because, like, I, I'm not the best one at deciding where the spices should go. And I'm willing to admit that at this point in my life. And so I'm like, great, I can have them there. You know, she can stay all day organizing and he'll build the furniture and then she could put the books in the bookshelf and it'll be great. And then when I come back from the holiday, I'll be stepping into a home that is, you know, for the most part in uh, in order and magazine functional. ready, a magazine ready home. <laughs> yes, or a, a almost magazine ready home, mm-hmm. you know, because then I need to book another task grabber to come to a deep clean and then I could decorate <laughs> a little bit. But for the most part, you know, we won't be in boxes anymore. And I completely forgot that I am the co-host of a podcast called Mom and Dad are Fighting, that, <laughs> 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 w- 
<laughs> that requires me to be here um, in studio uh, at the same time every single week. And so I um, had to reconvene with the organizer who obviously needed me to be around uh, at least a little bit more than I could be today. So my apartment will not be magazine ready until uh, <laughs> at some point in December when I return from my travels. Just remember Wednesday. Wednesdays. Wednesdays are yes. off limits. And so I booked her for the next Wednesday that we record the show, but <laughs> I scheduled um, it to happen afterwards. Okay, before we move on into some listener questions, let's take care of some business. This is your final reminder that we will be at the Miami Book Fair on Saturday, November 23rd for a special live edition of Mom and Dad Are Fighting. Dan and I will be joined by Pamela Paul from the New York Times Book Review and author of How to Raise a Reader and Adam Mansbach, author of Go the Fuck to Sleep and Fuck. Now, there are two of you. This is a free show. You can bring your kids. I'm always excited to meet other people's kids, especially mine is far, far away. Or you can hire a babysitter. But either way, we are very excited to meet our Florida listeners. And we're even more excited about the official after party um, club name to be announced. But it's going down. I've been talking about this for months. <laughs> I have a dress. And you all do not know what you are in store for. I don't know if you've ever partied with Diddy or Drake before, but they haven't partied with me. Jamila told me say. that I have to pack club clothes, and then I Googled club clothes. <laughs> so so you've got you that tell? to look forward to. I'm very excited about that. I'm even more excited about what a Google image search for club <laughs> clothes would turn out. I know what I'm going to be doing on the plane later. The live edition of Mom and Dad Are Fighting is going down this Saturday, November 23rd at Miami-Dade College. For tickets and information, go to slate.com backslash live. Slate's parenting newsletter is the best place to be notified of all of our parenting content, even though we don't let you know about our club parties. You have to follow Dan on Twitter for that. <laughs> you can keep up with Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Care and Feeding, and so much more via our newsletter. It is a personal email from Dan every week. Sign up right now at slate.com backslash parenting email. Also, check us out on Facebook. Search for Slate Parenting. It's a really fun community and it's well moderated. So you don't have to worry about anyone making you feel too bad about yourself. On Slate Plus today, we're going to be talking about our favorite amusement parks or if you are amusement park adverse as I am, how you can avoid going to them with your family. Here's a quick sneak peek. You went on what is literally the worst ride at every amusement park. Is it the really? The teacup ride is the Agreed. worst ride. Yes. yes. It's, Why would they even make it? I don't know. Some idiot likes it. Wasn't it wasn't But fun. it's definitely the worst ride. To hear segments like that and to get ad-free versions of your favorite Slate podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program. It's a great way to support the... Kind of decent, right? Work that we're doing over here. And for just $35 in your first year, you can help to cover the cost of producing Mom and Dad are Fighting and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows, plus a ton of other great benefits. So if you'd like to support Mom and Dad are Fighting, please, please, please go to slate.com backslash Mom and Dad Plus and join Slate Plus today. All right, let's take some listener questions. This question was emailed to us, and if you'd like to email us a question for consideration, send it to mom and dad at slate.com. 
This question is being read by the one and only Shasha Leonard. Dear mom and dad are fighting. I was surprised by my pregnancy with my first child nearly 10 years ago and was miserable about the news. For the first several months, I sobbed hysterically every day. In retrospect, my distress was less about the prospect of motherhood and more about the prospect of being trapped in my terrible marriage at that time, three years in. I was unexpectedly thrilled with motherhood. I had an easy pregnancy, easy labor, an easy baby who ate and slept like a champ. Being a mom gave my life a sense of direction and purpose that I hadn't had before, and my husband really stepped up for me and our son for a time. Our daughter was born almost five years later, this time after a mostly planned pregnancy. And unfortunately, during that pregnancy and her infancy, the marriage really deteriorated. We are now divorced, and I have the kids about 95% of the time. My ex-husband has some mental health problems that cause him to be quite volatile, and I know from experience he is capable of saying and doing some pretty harsh things, calculated to cut deeply. I have seen him display this behavior towards our son as well. I am concerned that one day he will lose his temper with our son and reveal to him that his conception was not planned, and that I was unhappy about being pregnant. Is there any way I can get ahead of this by telling my son, in a positive way, that while he was not planned, he is the best thing that has ever happened to me? What, if anything, do I say about my feelings about being pregnant? I have several friends whose parents have always made no bones about the fact that they were accidents, and their reactions are mixed. Some are burdened by the knowledge, and others don't seem to care or find it a little funny. Is it ever appropriate for a child to have this information about their origins? And if so, what's the best way to present it? Thank you. I would like to address this letter writer first, if you all don't mind. Sure, Dan. <clears throat> Is this thing on? <clears throat> don't tell your kid that they're an accident. There's absolutely no reason why at any point in the normal course of conversation, you need to bring up to your child at any age whether or not he or she was planned or unplanned. I just don't imagine any circumstance under which that is information that a child needs or wants to know. Now, the stated fear in the letter, which I think we all should discuss, is that at some point the volatile ex-husband might uh, might use this as an attack. Mm -hmm. Um. I would like to talk about this ex-husband more generally and about what we all think about him uh, mm -hmm. and how she might handle this situation broadly. But I would nevertheless say it is not your job to, in the process of thinking of hypothetical bad things that your ex-spouse might do, to yourself do slightly less bad versions of those bad things to your kids. Dan, I have to respond next because I am a two percenter. Uh, I didn't necessarily want to have the you were an accident conversation with my daughter mm -hmm. at the point when it, in which I did, but she'd started to connect some dots and um, had had a conversation with her dad that uh, we hadn't really had a chance to talk about, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one first, you know, I figured that we at some point would need to kind of collaborate and decide what's going to be the origin story and how are we going to present it. My daughter was conceived um, essentially during a breakup. And I found out that I was expecting some short time later, decided to keep the pregnancy. I was, you know, 
wanting the relationship to resume and believed that it could and should. And her father felt otherwise, but was, you know, willing to be an active and engaged co-parent. And we did therapy, you know, and I wanted to talk about reconciliation and he wanted to talk about how we could, um, you know, work together to, to parent separately, right? around the time that we broke up. So within weeks of me becoming pregnant, he connected with a woman who he would become engaged to during my pregnancy. And my daughter was present for their wedding when she was about two or three months old. So she's had a stepmother that she's known her entire life. You know what I mean? As much as I wanted to just say, you know, daddy was my boyfriend and then we broke up and you were born and, you know, he he meets Gigi. Like these things just kind of, you know, it was clear. And I get that those are particularly wild circumstances, especially considering how well everybody gets along and how easily we've been able to uh, parent as a trio for the past six years. But I think that having to keep a, a secret like that from your child can be a bit burdensome. I I don't think that she should be chasing an opportunity to volunteer this story, but I think that because of what her son knows about his father already and, and how he's treated his mother and, and how he's behaved in front of him and towards him, that if the subject of pregnancy were to come up, I wouldn't necessarily make it a point of saying, well, you know, we didn't plan for you, but that I was very scared I'll be honest about the fact that I was scared and you know it was a difficult time and it's an emotional time and that's something that we don't you know often talk about speaking to our kids about right like pregnancy itself good bad or otherwise you could be planned down to you know the day that your parents made love or you know that they went to um, a doctor to you know have an insemination and yet that time that you were you know, in your mother's womb was challenging for her, right? In in certain ways that we don't often talk about and we don't talk about it with our kids. And so that not saying like, hey, you need to feel guilty because for nine months I lugged you around and my ankles were swollen and I had, you know, preeclampsia and I wasn't myself and I couldn't do the things I like to do. But just that it's this uniquely emotionally complicated time in a woman's life. And I, I think it's fair that part of the origin story is sharing that, you know, it could be a dark and, and miserable period that results in this wonderful thing. So no matter how hard my pregnancy was, no matter how scared I was, no matter how bad things were with your father, I wanted you, right? I looked forward to you. And you don't have to be completely honest about that, but you know, or, or I was happy to have you. Since you've been here, you have been the light of my life. Um, I don't know, it's just kind of my, my take on it. What do you think, Elizabeth? Yeah, so my visceral reaction to the question was sort of similar to Dan's, that there is no circumstance in which you should tell a child that they were not planned. And I came at that from the kind of idea that it's hard for a child to kind of separate the ideas of planned and wanted and loved. And that your ultimate goal as a parent is to make sure that your child feels loved. And and I think that's kind of what you're talking about, is that as long as when you tell the origin story, the part that comes out is that sort of whatever happened before this, you are loved and you are part of this family and that, you know, anything that happened before that is kind of irrelevant to that fact. Right. I also personally with parenting on big topics like this, like to have the kids come to me to ask the questions. I think that if it's something that's bothering them, we have a relationship in which they can ask me these sort of things. And then I try to answer them 
honestly, but in simple information and let them ask further questions so that we only go as far as they are able. So from the perspective of like, should you tell them, I guess I come down at like, no, for this listener, if her ex-husband says these things, and then that becomes part of the conversation and needs to be addressed, then uh, I sort of said, okay, well, let's think about if that happens, what you need to do. Jamila, I'm sort of on the same page as you, where as long as you are showing them that they are loved and appreciated and highlight what a wonderful thing this turned out to be, focusing on the positive, you can create this context that the feelings of anxiety during pregnancy are normal, that all these things that happen during pregnancy are completely normal and don't shape your relationship with the child. I think letting them set the pace. My concern is that if she addresses this as sort of, hey, I want to tell you how you know, miserable I was at the beginning, that it, it makes it a thing, that mm-hmm. it might not be a thing otherwise. And Jamila, I think, I wonder if like for your daughter, it's not a thing because that's your story, right? Like she grew up that she was in the wedding. She, all these things that happened, it just wasn't a big deal. Uh, It doesn't feel weird to her. In a way that's maybe different for taking a kid at 10 and springing this on them because you're afraid that they might get it sprung on them in some other way. And, you know, 10 years old is... I think maybe right on the edge of starting to be able to understand some of the finer distinctions between planned and wanted and loved, as Elizabeth said. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that younger than that, if you spring it on a kid, it is really hard to make those points. And it is funny because I do think I'm a, I'm generally a be extremely honest with kids kind of person. And I feel like I've mm-hmm. probably had conversations with my kids that were significantly beyond their level of comprehension. But I really did have this visceral reaction of this particular issue on the question of were you wanted? I feel like I, I, I think that my philosophy is that parents should just be rosy and lie until a kid is like 14. Like I, I, and I don't know why, like, I don't, I don't, it's, that's probably not the right way to think. And that's probably unhealthy on multiple fronts, but like on this base question of, did I want you? I think if you're gonna, if that is a question your kid asks, I sort of just think the answer should just be yes. Yes, I wanted you. My pregnancy was difficult. It didn't matter I wanted you. Uh, I had a lot of emotional concerns at the time. It didn't matter I wanted you. And now I have you and I love you. Like, I just sort of have this instinct that that's what the response should be. Yeah, I say I think we're largely on the same page uh, in regards to that last part, Dan, you know, and, and I also really loved how you said that, Elizabeth, that, you know, not always being able to make the distinction between planned, wanted and loved when you're younger. Was I planned is a different question than was I wanted. Right. And in theory, um, that the pregnancy continued and under a whole lot of circumstances does point to being um, wanted despite being unplanned. Um, I think that. And I'm not saying this advocating for, you know, to just procreate with reckless abandon and just kind of let the chips fall where they may. Um, And also acknowledging that I took a huge gamble um, choosing to continue a pregnancy with an ex-boyfriend because, you know, despite what I I believed I knew about his character, um, that story has ended quite differently for a lot of uh, a lot of people. And it was still a traumatic one. Um, But that I want us to 
uh, as a society, destigmatized unplanned pregnancies. I mean, they're not so stigmatized that they've slowed down, right? Um, but it's how we talk about them uh, during and after. Uh, or rather, I should say, it's not always about how we talk about them during and after because it depends on the person and are they class mobile or what do we think of them, you know, independent of this pregnancy and, you know, how active is the father? But like, when we're not talking about a person, when we're talking about hypotheticals, we we still make it seem in 2019 that an unplanned pregnancy is just beyond the pale when the data implies that there's a whole lot more unplanned pregnancies, you know, than there are ones that were planned. And those aren't necessarily always the ones that make it to term, but that, you know, this isn't some niche phenomena, right? This isn't just something that young people or poor people or uneducated people or, or wealthy people are doing. This is something that everybody's doing. Like, whoops, a baby abounds, you know? And, and I think that if we were more comfortable talking about that, then a kid wouldn't necessarily feel bad for being unplanned. So there's nothing bad about being unplanned, right? Like it, it could be, I didn't plan to uh, buy a lottery ticket and I did and I won. And now my whole life is, is better and different now. Elizabeth, I I just think it's so hard for a a kid. And again, I mean, we're talking about a ten year old here, so it's hard to know what they know. But until you really understand like conception and that it can be planned, I, I think it's a really hard thing to ask a child to separate the unplanned from unwanted. If if any child, mine, anyone else you know, said to me, I was unwanted, I think I might suggest you might have been unplanned, but you're not unwanted. Because I, I just think that that is kind of the worst feeling that a child could have. And, and as a parent, that is what I think I spend the most time on with the kids. I am most worried about them knowing that they are part of this group and that they are wanted. And that extends to friends we have around us and friends' children and to say, you are wanted and, and you know, you're not always a joy in the sense of like you're throwing things on the floor, but you are a joy to have here. Because um, I think there's so many things in the world that that tell them that they're not enough and that that they are, you know, different in this way and that this doesn't have to be one of those. At the end of the day, I think, too, as you're older, having this conversation then can be kind of funny. Or there's a Thanksgiving dinner in which my sister and I were arguing about which one of us was unplanned <laughs> because we are five years apart. And um, my father sort of threw his hands on the table and said, you were both unplanned, <laughs> you know. But it, it at this age, that is hysterical to me because I know I'm part of this family. I know that that has nothing to do with how much I'm loved. My sister knows that too. And we were taking cheap shots at us. I I just worry that at 10, that's a, that's a lot to ask a child to do. Can we briefly talk about this ex-husband? Um, oh, I yeah. feel like it, it seems very clear to me that the letter writer ought to say something to the ex-husband, not about this particular issue, because you don't want to put the idea into his head that this is a mean thing you could say to the kid in a moment of anger. Mm -hmm. But I do think that if you are like living in constant fear that your ex-husband is going to say something to hurt your kid, uh, I I think, and, and this is not exactly within the scope of the letter, and it's totally possible this letter writer is taking a bunch of steps to try and deal with this, but I do think you need to be talking to your ex about how important it is to you that that kid does not become 
a pawn in the middle of this, does not become the the object of hurtful comments that are inspired by conflict between you two or by conflict between the the ex and the son. And if he really is emotionally or verbally abusive in that way, I mean, I think that 95% has got to be 100%, right? I, yeah, I agree. I mean, I when I read this, I thought the ex-husband is kind of a whole issue in and of itself. And how are these mental health issues being addressed both as co-parents and with the children? I think sometimes, you know, the reason that there's 95 versus 100% is a matter of what the court, you know, has determined. And we've definitely gotten a number of letters, particularly to um, Karen Fading from uh, parents, often mothers that said, if it were up to me, I'd like to keep my ex completely away but he was awarded time and so we have to um honor that but yes dan i I do agree he's um he's scary in a lot of ways and there's certainly a lot that we don't know about him and and how they spend this five percent of the time together and um you know how he typically communicates with his ex and if that's you know a matter of him being medicated versus not being medicated or you know if he's having a good day or a bad day or if he's consistently um, volatile and uh, verbally abusive, but definitely don't want to put the battery in his back by suggesting, you know, you better never tell him that, right. you know. Um, <laughs> but I, I agree that if you are capable of having a conversation with him about the importance of uh, putting aside your, your personal issues, no matter how valid they may be, and presenting some semblance of a united front um, or, or being respectful of one another. And, you know, being respectful of him does not mean not talking to her child about how fucked up he is, right? It, but, but it's still, you know, it's not saying I hate him, he's a piece of shit, but, you know, your father has these issues and here's how they've manifested in our relationship, you know, at the point in which she's ready to have that conversation with her son. And here's the impact that they've had, you know, on our family. Um, But uh, overall, I think we are all in agreement that, no, this isn't a conversation that you need to just start with your kid. Um, However, if he asks questions um, that lead you into this direction or or to have this line of conversation that you make a point of establishing uh, and repeating over and over again that he is loved. Um, that he was embraced warmly, that you were happy to have him, and that, um, you know, he, he's one of the best things that's ever happened to you, and, and nothing could change that. Good luck, letter writer. Good yeah. luck to you. <laughs> Good luck to you. Okay, um, letter number two. Dear Mom and Dad are fighting. I'm a longtime listener of your podcast and decided today is the day to write to you and ask about something that has been bothering me for quite some time. My husband and I are both introverts, as is our oldest child, who is almost seven years old. Since my older daughter started preschool, it has been my goal to get out of our shells and be more social in hopes that we could find a few families we click with, both for my mental health and for my kids to have a social network. We've had some success in preschool and met four great families who we clicked with well, both the parents and the kids. Unfortunately, a couple of them have moved across country. I can't say the same about our experience in elementary school so far in regards to making new friends. It has been so hard to find moms or families we click with where the interest in getting to know each other is mutual. I try to be friendly and initiate small talk with moms at school pickup and drop off when I feel particularly brave. It's hard work for this introvert mom who is not super chatty, upbeat, and cool like some of the moms I witness daily at these drop-offs. 
How, as a parent, do you go about making new friends, specifically other parents? Thanks. Frozen in Seattle. So I um, have been saving this letter for a couple of weeks for this episode particularly because, um, as a little background, our family met Elizabeth and her family in the Netherlands when we lived there, when we were doing the trip for the book. And um, which they had lived there for a couple of years at that point, and we were amazed by the number of friends that they had surrounded themselves in this community in a place where specifically we had a lot of difficulty making friends. And since then, they've moved to Florida. We landed in Florida to visit them like two months ago, and were once again amazed at the number of friends that they seem to have surrounded themselves with there after only having been there a short amount of time. And because Elizabeth's husband is in the Air Force, Um, I really wanted to have her on this show to answer this question, to talk about how, Elizabeth, do you go about making new friends in every new place you live every, like, three damn years? Yeah. (laughs) So I I first want to say it's hard. It's hard. It's it's not easy to do. And even the cool mom she's seeing or these people with friends have put in the work. Um, I still get scared. And those like butterflies in my stomach when we are at a new playground somewhere or when we are um, having to go to our first story time or school drop off, whatever it is, I still get scared. Um, So I think have heart just because um, it feels hard. (laughs) It is hard, but it pays off. I feel like this uh, writer is acing the meeting friends game. Like she is going to the right places. She is starting small talk. And then she is never taking the next step where you make friends. And that is the part where you never leave a conversation without a phone number, an email, or future plans. Hmm. And I know that sounds really hard and scary. I'm an extrovert, but It's still hard and scary because the idea of rejection is still there. But I will tell you what, I can't even remember getting rejected. I'm sure people have been like, you're crazy, Uh, particularly at the Dutch playgrounds. I mean, I was approaching these women speaking Dutch to each other and asking them for things um, that I was rejected. I don't remember any of those. I only remember the friends that I have that said, you know, yes, I'll meet you there, a friend of mine from Colorado Springs says she remembers me literally walking up to her at this stroller strides and saying, basically, we are going to be friends. (laughs) I'm new. Give me your email and we will hang out. Um, I like to think it was more put together, but I can't really put it past myself that that isn't exactly what I said. I feel like she's waiting a lot for people to come to her and take that next step. I think a lot of people, especially if you've been in the in a place for a long time, are sitting with enough friends. And so they're not necessarily like on the hunt for a new friend. But everyone is always, I find again, willing to say yes, have you out for coffee. I think um, the other thing is that nothing endears a friend like needing help. And asking for help is something that is very difficult for a lot of people. I, as a military spouse, like when we get somewhere, I don't have an emergency contact. So I have to find someone to Mm. ask to be that person. Um, And a lot of times that is like the first neighbor that has said hi to me or the mom we met at the park. But that Mm. is seriously, it's such a bridge to making friends because when you have asked someone to do something for you and they agree, then usually you bring them a coffee or something because you feel so overwhelmed and then they do something for you. And that is the building block of friends. I also think that one of the things you can do to stop feeling so lonely is hang on to the friends that you had, even if they've moved. 
when I move someplace, I make a lot of like, I call them friends of the road, friends that I have here. Their friendships are incredibly important for the place that I am, but I may not take them with me to the next place. And they, you know, don't want to take me either. We are just here at the same time experiencing the same thing. Our friendship is incredibly valuable there. Um, but I try to keep those friends of the heart that I have made along the road um, to be those people to help me carry my emotional burden of life until I have made someone here. And I think that then takes the stakes off of how much you need a friend. So if you have someone that you're calling and checking in with about the hardships of, for me, motherhood or or whatever your daily grind is, then you don't necessarily need that from the friend that you're just need to meet up with and chat about having a friend or coffee. And that takes some of the burden off of that. So I guess I come down to like, I want you to give yourself a pep talk, cry in the car. I've, I've done both. Um, put on a huge smile and then be like, today I'm going to learn one name, get a phone number, get an email address and set up a, set up a date with someone, even if it feels like it's going to kill me. Uh, that is all extremely good advice. Uh, I especially like how systematic you sometimes need to be about these things. It's, I mean, it's worth it to not view it as different from like, I'm, you know, I'm at a conference for my job and I need to come out of this conference with six business cards for people who eventually could hire me for something. You have personal obligations as you have professional obligations. And, and as you need to nurture your career, you need to nurture your emotional life and your friendships. And there's like tasks involved in doing that. I'm really interested, um, Elizabeth, in the extent to which the fact that your military means that the places you're landing tend to be filled with people who might also need friends, who are newer to those places, um, who who are a little bit in the same boat as you. Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, we've moved a lot. When I lived in um, California, I actually lived on base. So everybody was in the exact same boat as me. And that was like friend making gold, like just <laughs> just like mm-hmm. everyone friendly because we're all in the same boat. Um, when I moved to Delft, there was no one. We were um, not there on a military base. We were sent there to live a civilian life. I had to make friends. I had to make friends with people that didn't speak English necessarily. I made expat friends um, by... I think one woman was sitting at a, this is my Canadian friend, was sitting at a coffee shop and I heard her speak English and pulled my chair up, um, (laughs) which is just like, hey, do you understand what anyone around here is saying? That Um, same woman later met us and said, oh, there's someone you need to meet. I met her because she just walked up to me at a coffee shop and said, you speak English. so true it's so true and there I did actually make Dutch friends which was like a huge success and that took me a long time and um, a lot of hard work it started again by just asking I needed favors I didn't know what people were supposed to bring in their lunch to school I didn't know what any of these things meant and just having to ask for help and eventually I guess I endeared myself um, to them or they realized I wasn't going anywhere and just well okay we can invite her out Um, But here, actually, in Florida, there's a big base here, but things are pretty spread out. So I um, have made friends, some of whom are military, Mm -hmm. but I have made them all sort of in this organic way, meeting them at at coffee shops, meeting them at the library, at all the places we go. I'm homeschooling here, which I've never done before, so uh, I basically was like friends was the number one on my list. Like if I'm going to be home with these kids all day, I better have a whole bunch of moms that I Mm -hmm. can have play dates with, have people to, 
you know, help me watch the kids while, if I need to go to the doctor or something like that. Um, so I think, but at this point too, I've moved five or six times. So also now it is ingrained. I have noticed also that my middle child, Oliver, is incredibly shy and even he can make friends with any. He is the introvert in our family and he can make friends with almost anyone. I think because we, we move a lot and we all know we just have to do it. And the more times you do it and it's successful, I think, you know, you stop remembering that there were times when people said no. Um, and because the times when people say yes blossom into such sweet friendships. The reason I asked about that particular issue is because one of the great successes we've had in making friends was when we first moved to Arlington back in 2009. And we really needed friends and we didn't know anyone here. And we ended up, uh, people who live in Arlington will know, will laugh as soon as they hear the story, but we needed uh, preschool for our kids. And we called like 20 preschools and we're like, hey, can we enroll our children? And they all just laughed at us. Uh, and said, well, feel free to put them on the three-year waiting list. And the only preschool we found that had any spaces available was a preschool that had just opened. And so Mm -hmm. that preschool that had just opened was filled with desperate people like us who had just moved to Arlington from Mm -hmm. somewhere else. And so every parent there was in the exact same boat as us and needed friends. And we made a bunch of friends at that preschool who we still have to this day. And our initial relationship was based entirely on desperation. It was like nothing but that. But this is just a roundabout way of saying this letter writer, like this is, this may sound and feel so mercenary to you, but like if there is a new kid in your child's classroom who just moved to Seattle from somewhere else, (laughs) fucking call that mom on the phone tomorrow and be like, do you want to have coffee? Because that is a desperate person who needs a friend and you can be that friend. Yes. I have literally nothing to offer because we are new in town and I'm lonely and I don't even, Naima went to to a daycare center for three years that was very much a community in and of itself. So there were, you know, there was an emphasis on forging relationships um, with one another. And I was lucky enough to know one or two families when we started and that was pretty much enough to just kind of, you know, make some bonds. And I'll admit I didn't get as close to uh, some folks there as I may have liked to, but we stayed in touch with each other even when, you know, the kids graduated and went their separate ways for elementary school. There was still like this really solid core of like, hey, you know, what's going on at you guys' school? Here's, you know, the drama with this principal and, you know, and, and going to each other's birthday parties and stuff. And so that was great. And here, um, now that we're in California, I think something I dealt with at the other two schools too, but it just still kind of worked out okay because of the nature of the school communities was I always have a hard time kind of gauging like unless somebody immediately jumps out to me as like, okay, that's my that's my type of person. We're going to be good friends um, because of, you know, maybe they have like blue hair or they're dressed a little bit more bohemian or there's just something that comes off as like different than, you know, the close your eyes and picture a parent, you know, or picture a parent in this community. And, you know, those of us who just kind of seem like natural outliers tend to gravitate toward each other. Um, and I have a college classmate whose daughter attends Naima school, which has been cool. But like I went to a parent teacher night and I, I oftentimes feel like I'm a lot younger than the other parents, which isn't always true. I went through that at the last school where I assumed everybody was older. But I think the word I was looking for is like maybe like mature or <laughs> or that they dress like adults, um, you know, and, and maybe they, they have a nine to five or, you know, some sort of family friendly vehicle or something just signals, you know, adulthood and parenting in ways that I don't think I, you know, at first glance do. 
And, you know, and, and oftentimes there were a lot of parents that were, you know, significantly older or they were married and I was single and in the streets or they were, you know, single but didn't have, you know, a co-parent at all. So we couldn't really bond uh, on that level either. I don't know. I just always feel like a, a square peg surrounded by um, round holes, which is a terrible analogy for other parents. Um, but uh, all that to say, I emphasize with the letter writer and as outgoing as I can be trying to introduce myself to new people is it's terribly scary proposition. So I'm very grateful to the two of you, especially Elizabeth, for all your insight. Jamal, I feel like, though, you're you're looking for something so specific. And since we move around a lot, too, one of the things is that I I feel no like, uh, I guess, commitment to this person being like forever, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of people that I have not expected to be my forever friends are my forever friends. And that sometimes it's enough to just have someone else to like complain about the attendance policy with. Do you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. just anyone from the school, even if they are kind of the more square I can't remember if you were the square peg or the round she peg. She was but. talking about square pegs, though, okay. for real. So, yes. That's so what I she was talking about. So I think it would be okay <laughs> to find a square peg and be, you know, you can be friends with a square peg and, and it'll work out and you'll find that there's a lot of interesting things that can bring to that friendship, even if it's only that you're both in trouble about attendance or that you're both, you know, those sort of things. I, um, I, I agree. And I would just put it a different way, which is that I think you're being too picky. I just think as a guy who looks like the textbook definition of a boring dad, uh, I nevertheless think that it is totally worth it to make casual friendships with people who do not necessarily seem cool. Uh, because oh Dan, either not because they're not cool. It's that it, I think it's less about me deeming them not cool enough or interesting enough for me, as I feel like they're gonna look at you know our non traditional family and my non traditional self and be like, e. I think give them a chance. I think most people will be happy to have a friend as well, and it's after sort of the first month or so of making that casual friendship that you then can say, I know this person a little bit better. I see how they're responding to me and my family. I see how I'm responding to them. Then you can make the decision, is this someone I want to try and deepen this relationship with? Or is this a great person to have a drink with once every five months and complain about the teacher? But like, I absolutely make agree. the overture. I absolutely agree. Okay. I, I, so easily feel an emotional obligation or connect to people not even a connection just a sense of obligation like okay well now that we're friends i have to just like be their friend and you know um and if, if what if they don't like me will they you know be okay with us doing this thing that i honestly i don't want much more than a couple of play dates a birthday party attendance and you know that one drink every five months so i will um i will attempt to engage with the parents in my community and report back and letter writer <laughs> i want you uh, to get one email address <laughs> okay one email address yeah that's all you need Yes. Okay. I'm going to work on that. Give me until uh, after Thanksgiving <laughs> and I am going to somehow connect with one parent. One parent. Just one parent. We will check up on you. We're going to. Yeah, exactly. Because at this point, I think I'm going to take Naima back to New York for her birthday party this year because Aww. I don't know that I'm up for the emotional roller coaster of like, well, we don't know these people well enough. So are they going to even come? But not the worst thing. All right. Best of luck to you, letter writer. I hope you find a whole bunch of friends. Keep us posted. 
And again, thank you so much for writing in. And if you would like to send us a question or conflict uh, and have us fix it for you, send an email to momanddad at slate.com. Again, momanddad at slate.com. Okay, before we get out of here, it's time for recommendations where we share something that we think is great, either for personal use, family use, for the kids, um, etc. I guess those are the only categories of engagement you could have with something, but you get the point. What do you have for us, Elizabeth? Okay, so I have something that's free and run by the government. I know. Uh, It's actually the (laughs) National Park Service runs something called the Junior Ranger Program, and this is where kids can earn badges. It's you know, free educational fun. You can actually go do it at a national park, all the national parks, national historic sites, national monuments, which I guarantee there is one near you have these. Uh, you go and you get this packet of activities for, they have ones for different ages. You complete the activity uh, and then you turn it in for a badge. But if there's not one near you or you don't like the outdoors or leaving your house, you can actually um, do them online, which we love to do. So we print them you either take pictures of them and email it into the address or mail it in and then your child gets the mail back with this little badge Mm -hmm. and they're on topics like junior cave scientists there's one for nasa there's a um junior snow ranger one about fishing my kids adore these they are wonderful to bring on trips to just kind of focus on a particular topic that they're interested in it's a variety of activities that require you to maybe look stuff up online some are word searches um, some are just fun like learning about habitat programs but it's really great my kids love getting the mail Um, I feel accomplished because we've done some kind of fun educational activity Um, and I always pack them away just for like doing in a restaurant or on a train or something like that so that's my recommendation the national park service junior ranger badges very cool we'll put a link up on the show page as well thank you awesome dan what do you have uh my recommendation is very simple is based on a, a a nighttime ritual that harper and i have developed every single night before she goes to bed my recommendation is creating a secret handshake with your kid Get Dan, why is that my recommendation? I swear to God, are you serious? Wait, is that also your recommendation what? today? Yes, I swear <laughs> on everything I believe in. Amazing. Wow. Uh, well, let's do, let's do it in unison. Creating a secret <laughs> handshake with your kid is great because? Because it allows you to have something that just belongs to you and them. You have multiple children. You should have one for each child, even though a family handshake could be cool too. But the idea that just... One parent, one child, one thing, no one else in the world has this. Makes them feel very special. Uh, Yeah, I love it. I love doing this secret handshake I have with Harper. Liar doesn't give a shit, so we don't have one. Uh, (laughs) But Harper, like, thrives on this, like, little tiny ritual that we do every single night. um, And it's very meaningful to her, and I find it very endearing. Uh, And I also like the idea of a family handshake. The closest we came to that was when Harper went to middle school in sixth grade and Lyra was there as an eighth grader. We told them both that when they see each other in the hall, they're both required to make a little like K with their hands. uh, (laughs) So like as a way of saying, I see you, it's going to be okay. Um, And Harper reported that Lyra even did that once. So that was very exciting. (laughs) That is that is the sweetest thing. And it's so funny because just now, like, we have a shared doc that we use um, for each episode. And I was going to make a little note, uh, signals uh, underneath my name for this part because I wanted to make sure that I didn't forget part. And I was like, no, I don't want to write in the shared doc. But literally, I wish I had written it because then I'd have my proof. It's okay. This this <laughs> recommendation, Jamila, is our secret handshake. This is we our secret handshake. We both share it. 
And you don't have to come up with something else. This is it. You did it. This Great is, job. This is it. This is it. I just want to add one thing. Uh, my daughter and I, we had one years ago and we didn't really keep up with it. And she was so small that it was kind of hard for her to, you know, remember how to execute it each time. And I guess that was maybe like when she was three or four that we had tried to come up with that. Um, I remember when Jimmy Fallon's mother passed away. Uh, his first episode back on The Tonight Show, he told the story of um, being with her, you know, by her bedside when she was preparing to transition and that there was a signal that they've had throughout his life where while holding hands, one of them would squeeze the other's hand three times. And that was their way of silently saying, I love you. And that his mother gave him, you know, one last three squeeze. She gave their signal um, one last time before she passed away. And I ugly cried, of course, after hearing that because it's such a beautiful and, you know, sad story. And I immediately started doing that with my daughter. And so we, for years... um, especially after maybe she's had a tantrum or I've raised my voice or, you know, we may not be in the best uh, of moods. We'll be holding hands and one of us will squeeze the other person's hand three times to say, I love you. And so um, I just absolutely love that. And I think it's such a sweet thing that everybody um, can adopt. But last night we just kind of randomly started uh, making up handshakes again. And we went through a whole lot of them. We're still workshopping, but I looked up and I was like, we spent like 40 minutes just having fun making up handshakes and just uh, she was so excited about it and so yes I was excited to share that with you all so I'm glad that it was a good recommendation because now you can say two out of two uh, (laughs) mom and dad are fighting (laughs) hosts agree that you and your kids should have a handshake I think that uh, the three squeeze is very sweet and it's also great because if she ever meets Jimmy Fallon they'll have that in common Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And that is our show. Uh, If you have a question that you'd like for us to ask on air, leave us a message, old school style, 424-255-7833, or send us an email at slate.com. Also, don't forget to join us on Facebook by searching Slate Parenting. Mom and Dad are Fighting is produced by Rosemary Belson. For Dan Coyce and Elizabeth Newcamp, I'm Jamila Lemieux. 